when we come across something like type 2 diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, super complicated processes, we're still looking for that magic bullet, that single nutrient, that single medicine, whatever it is. And that's why we doctors particularly are really well trained on pharmaceutical drugs. They're really badly trained on lifestyle and complex, trying to work out complex solutions to problems. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hi friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today I sit down with Dr. Tim Spector. Dr. Spector is a medically qualified professor of epidemiology and director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College London. His current work focuses on the microbiome and nutrition, and he is co-founder of the company Zoe, which has commercialized a home kit for personalized nutrition. In this conversation, we focus on his research on twins, how two people can be genetically identical but experience very different health, what makes us most unique, and how personalized nutrition may be the key to unlocking the healthiest versions of ourselves. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line 
with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Tim, welcome to the show. I uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk all things nutrition with us today. It's a great pleasure. There's a lot that I want to talk to you about and, and we were just chatting off air. I think this will be hopefully one of, a, of several conversations that we have. I, I always find your posts online and your journal articles, of which there are many. How, how many journal articles have you published so far? Um, it must be getting towards a thousand by now, but <laughs> I, 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 I don't count them every day. So right. um, it's, it's very high numbers, embarrassingly high, actually. <laughs> people say, well, you can't possibly have uh, you know, written them all in great detail. <laughs> well, there's a lot. And, and of course, your books, one of which I have in front of me here, uh, Spoon Fed, I've, I've always really enjoyed your books. I find them extremely insightful. Given that it's your first time on the show Tim, it would probably be nice to kind of start here by hearing from you how this very, very big successful career of yours in, in science and, and nutrition science came about and, and how, how it's sort of evolved over the last few decades for you. It's an interesting question really because I think it, 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 it's been an evolution rather than things suddenly happening. And I, I started... I, I, as a doing medicine in London and was much more interested in, in the research side of it, but got drawn to clinical medicine and did get interested in epidemiology as a medical student and actually wrote a paper as a medical student, um, uh, which uh, got me sort of interested in that, in that field. I, I then um, went on and did rheumatology so as a physician, which is arthritis research and uh, oh, arthritis bones and joints, became a consultant, which sort of gets to the top of that tree. But on the way, I did a, a stopped and did a master's um, in epidemiology and really did this sort of epidemiology of, of bone and joint diseases. My thesis was in hormones, menopause and arthritis. And then I, in about 1993, uh, needed a, a break from my supervisor in a new career. And I, I, that's when I decided to start the Twins Project, which was um, having the, the, the biggest twin um, registry in the UK and started working on that full time. And that was a real big success. And we ended mm -hmm. up with 15,000 twins. And then I started branching away from just doing arthritis and osteoporosis and started really studying every disease under the sun, um, both physical and mental and psychological, using the same methods of this nature v. nurture idea of twins. And that was amazingly successful because no, no one else had that resource. Mm -hmm. And able to answer all kinds of fascinating questions, particularly at a time when people were thinking all these um, uh, chronic diseases were just wear and tear. You know, oh, that's just old age, and and 
the idea that were genetic components to it was totally new. Mm-hmm. Discovering things like Ooh, back pain is actually three times more genetic than breast cancer. You know, it was that kind of stuff that we were uh, bringing out. And then obviously discovering genes on the way. And I sort of taught myself genetics and genetic epidemiology and sort of became an expert after a while. And then then I I started getting interested in why twins um, were different, why identical twins didn't always get the same diseases. They didn't always have the same personalities. One would be fat, one would be thin. You know, one would be um, uh, depressed, one would be happy, one would get cancer, one wouldn't. So then I started saying, well, this should be the perfect model to tease out when you've got two genetic clones, why Mm -hmm. one's different to the other. So then I got interested in epigenetics. And I thought that would going to be the answer. This is the study of how chemicals can switch on your genes on and off. And so, you know, your genes aren't this absolutely fixed item. You can slightly uh, tweak them. And that's why identical twins could be different. And that led me a certain way, but I found it wasn't really a big change. And it was really hard technologically to follow that up. The science wasn't quite there. And so um, that that was... uh, that then got me onto looking for something else, and that really got me onto the microbiome. And I think that was the turning point for me when I suddenly said, this is about 12 years ago, um, getting into the gut microbes, discovering those guys, they were so different that that said, this, this, is, uh, this is my field now. And this suddenly uh, makes nutrition interesting from being the most boring science in the world to being the most exciting science. And that's where I, I made the switch again in my career to really move from genetics, epigenetics, uh, into nutrition and the gut microbiome. So one of the, the things that I kind of want to untangle in this conversation is is throughout your career, how your views of nutrition and how food and, and diet relates to health has changed, how it has sort of evolved over over time. Back in your days working as a rheumatologist and uh, at that time, do you recall what your views on nutrition were and, and did you have sort of any strong views with regards to how food affected health at that time? I think I had the very traditional views of a, of a doctor who was brought up Having had you know maybe three or four hours of nutrition training in the in the sort of five or six years of medical school, so very limited. Uh, you know we were taught much more about scurvy than obesity, for example, mm-hmm. and still people medical stu- students still are, although we never see a case case of scurvy. Um, it's it was really that yeah, obesity was this thing that just happened. It was more about willpower. Um, people were just lying about what they ate um, and that you were just told, you know, uh, tell your patients, eat less and move more. That's that's the only real way, you know, and, um, there, you know, there were no skinny, there were no, you know, overweight people in concentration camps was a sort of mentality that was rather brutal at the time when you were seeing these very overweight Patients, that's what my bosses were saying to, mm-hmm. to the patients. So it was very, 
unsympathetic um, approach, and it was um, we really had no answers either because particularly in, in rheumatology, there are many overweight patients suffering with really bad arthritis, and the arthritis made the problem worse. They really couldn't move, uh, and they were in pain. And um, the whole thing was a very bad, vicious circle, and they ended up getting diabetes as well. So it was a, it was a time of great ignorance when you look back. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm not, not at, at all um, proud of myself and what my colleagues were, were doing. And, um, uh, but it, when we first started, there weren't that many morbidly obese uh, patients. It was something that came on in my career. And I remember... Mm-hmm. When I had, a, I was working for a year in, in Belgium, in Brussels, and saw for the first time actually um, they had a speciality that had a special specialized in overweight patients in obesity, and that didn't exist in the UK at the time. There was nobody trained in uh, mm. in how to deal with very overweight patients, so every, everyone just made it up as they went along. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, Bad news and diabetes was something you know. No one really. It was a very minor thing when I started um, type two diabetes, and you, you, we learned very little about it in medical school. And uh, it was just drug treatment was the only only way forward. So it's it's changed massively as as I've gone through medicine. Really, mm-hmm. as we've seen these epidemics come at us and totally ill prepared uh, for it. Do you think that? most of that can be attributed to the fact that you mentioned their scurvy, right? And, and sort of in the early 1900s, I imagine it made a lot of sense to focus on a single nutrient. And I know that you talk a lot about nutritionism. Is it, is it, is it applying the same lens? We tried to apply the same sort of lens to a different series of conditions. Is that, is that what you're getting at in terms of not really having the right tools to to combat these chronic diseases that were quickly developing. I think so. I, I, well, it's all part of this reductionism that is, you know, medicine is not much different to other branches. We like to have a simple solution and work out, you know, oh, it's this deficiency and this chemical. If we uh, put it, give it back to people, we can cure them. And this was very much. Uh, the teaching of the time. So uh, that's why medical students today still learn about scurvy because it's a lovely story that if you find out it was the vitamin C causing, it was the, you know, the villain, uh, everybody wins and, 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 and everyone says how brilliant you are. And we keep, we keep searching for this, uh, <laughs> these equivalents in medicine. And mm-hmm. when we come across something like uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, super complicated uh, processes, we're still looking for that magic bullet, that single nutrient, that single medicine, whatever it is. And that's why we, doctors particularly are trained, you know, they're really well trained on on pharmaceutical drugs. They're really badly trained on lifestyle and complex, uh, trying mm-hmm. to work out complex solutions to problems. So I think that's that's really where we are. And that's why medicine does focus on these single uh, chemical solutions and they love the thing oh this this chemical in the brain does this we can therefore switch it off with a drug and that's that's this huge fallacy that was able to cope with disease in the past in 
particular infections in that, but it's totally not suited for this complex array of, mm-hmm. of complex diseases we're seeing uh, in the in the modern era. And I think that's that's really what I was getting at, and, and how my training, um, you know, was you know was largely just disappointing for many of these diseases. Yet it. In some, you know, in small areas, it was amazingly successful. You mentioned earlier that it was the the twins research that sort of led you to to start thinking about the microbiome, and you also just mentioned then that these conditions like obesity and type two diabetes really started to to gather pace, um, you know, particularly in the last thirty odd years. And I'm interested in this this kind of discussion about genetics, epigenetics, and the microbiome, would I be right that a condition like obesity is highly heritable? There are many obesity-related genes and that humans for, I guess, presumably thousands of years have, well, many, many more than that, have had these genes and had a susceptibility to storing excessive fat, but then it's taken a change in the environment in order for, for that to lead to the the overweight or excessive fatness adiposity that we see today? Yes. I mean, most studies, if you take family studies, adoption studies, and twin studies, you put um, the genetic component to, to obesity around 50 or 60%. So right. um, the heritable component that is how much of that is explained by your genes is certainly you know is is over fifty percent in most of these studies. So there is a susceptibility to it, and there's also there's we did studies showing that where you lay down that fat in your body is also largely genetic. So whether you get the beer belly or the big bum or whatever it is, you know that's um, your genes are sort of deciding where to store that fat in your body, as well as internal fat. So we know that's a big problem, what's called the visceral fat around your organs and your stomach and your liver. Again, there's a a predisposition to that. And I think if you look evolutionary-wise, this was generally beneficial in the past because we used to episodically run out of food and therefore people that were really effective at storing fats did well. And so... The idea of the genes was really to maintain this uh, body body weight at all, at all costs. So you would uh, they wouldn't it wouldn't really th- make sense to have an upper limit of it, and that's that's why uh, we're in this problem now. So we've got a set point that cuts in that stops us burning energy when we get low, but there's no real upper point. And in the past, that hasn't really been a problem. Uh, and until we were faced with this overabundance of food, mm-hmm. uh, cheap food that was available, that was super tasty, that made you even more hungry when you ate more of it, uh, it is combined with an environment where we're perhaps moving, you know, less than we we used to be. So I think, yeah. So the genes that served us well in the past. Um, are not serving us uh, well at the moment. So we, we lay down a lot more fat than, um, than we would have done in the past because we're not dealt, not having those periods of famine where mm-hmm. it was useful. I think that's the way to see it. But it's a, it's you know it's quite clear now. There's a there's a very good lower set point 
where our body does everything to keep our body weight at a certain point. And that's why, you know, people on starvation diets just plateau out. Uh, and But at the top, there's no real, there isn't that set point. Mm-hmm. And um, most people will just keep keep going on up. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that we need, yeah, about a third of people just seem to have some resistance to getting very overweight. And that's another interesting um, mm-hmm. part of it. That um, even in countries where there's massive obesity, you never find 100% of the population um, uh, obese. How many different genes are there that have been kind of identified that relate to obesity or would predispose someone to gaining excessive fat? Um, Several hundred. Several hundred genes. Um, It depends on how your threshold for deciding, you know, what percent. Because the bigger your sample size, the more you can show tiny genes that have a minute effect of 0.01%. And once you get to a million people, you can start to show these effects, which are very bigger at a population level, but very trivial at a personal Mm -hmm. level. And I think this this is the problem. So people say, oh, yes, we've discovered you know, 500 genes for obesity, uh, that means we can, you know, understand obesity. But if you put them all together, they maybe only explain 1% or 2% of mm-hmm. uh, any one individual's uh, genetic uh, composition. So that even if you understood them, you'd only, you wouldn't really be able to predict much about that person. And that's, that's the big difference between – that's why genetics has been disappointing – uh, in in the science of right. uh, chronic diseases, because we've found l- thousands of, of genes, but sticking them all together, they only account for a very small percentage of uh, of the condition. So you can't use them as a personalized predictors of things that we thought we were going to. Right, but if if we're thinking on the individual level. Uh, I mean, we all kind of know someone who seems to not have too much trouble at all staying thin and then someone else who is is seeming to, to try to do all the right things but is, is really struggling. How much of that could be down to genetics versus other factors like the microbiome? I think if you'd asked me five years ago, I'd have said most of that is genetics. <laughs> um, but... And certainly, you know, just the, the overall maintaining a weight has a, had definitely has a at least fifty percent genetic factor. But knowing that the way we respond to food is not nearly as genetic uh, from our latest research, and that using twins to see when you actually do dynamic studies on twins, how does their body respond to the same food? It's it's much more different than we thought. I think. Uh, the environmental component, the microbiome component, could be much more important than we than we've believed before. So I'm sure it's a mixture, um, but and and there's definitely some genetic component because we all know families where everybody stays skinny and they can seem to overeat, and others, you know, what it, it's the opposite. But I think there's quite a lot of middle ground and interaction between the genes and the environment and uh, the mm-hmm don't depend on genetics. And because we know the microbiome is only very weakly heritable, uh, you know, estimates around 5% or something, that's this other whole organ that is outside this genetic control that I think 
uh, is important. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a bit of both. I, I'm not going to go and put a percentage on it because I don't think we know enough about these complex interactions. And individuals might be different. And there might be, you know, we're, we can't assume that all the genes are working the same way. And there might be some families where the, these genes really are very strong and others where, you know, it really is the environment and the microbiome that are that's stronger. So I think we have to keep an open mind on that. If someone's listening and thinking, what are these guys talking about, genes and, and obesity, um, are we talking about various genes that could be affecting things like your appetite, um, hormones, so regulation of appetite, or are we talking about genes that regulate your, your sort of basal metabolic rate? How would these genes kind of be interacting with this uh, body fatness that we're talking about? Most of the genes that have been found so far, uh, when you look at their function, that have been associated with, with obesity in these massive studies we're talking about, you know, where you get, you know, quarter of a million people and you look at their, you, you get, you compare their BMI, body mass index with their genes. Most of them tend to be involved in the brain, interestingly. Mm-hmm. So um, the genetic control of the brain, which is probably around appetite, satiety, fullness, um, you know, your drive for food or how quickly you, you feel uh, the need to have more food again. Um, subtle changes there look as if from the, from the number of genes that that's uh, more under genetic control than, say, this, these other me- metabolic rate mechanisms. Although we should say we, we still don't have very good methods of measuring metabolic rate mm-hmm. or understanding how we burn calories. So it could be that we're missing a lot because we don't, we can't uh, identify those. But so far, most people see are quite surprised at how much of the, many of these genes are brain function genes rather than uh, adip- adipose function genes. Um, but so, but you know, but whether we've scratching the surface or we really have got uh, a full picture, I, I don't think anyone quite knows yet. Mm-hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, 
go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Something that's always interested me, and I'm sure you're familiar with this study, a colleague of yours, Christopher Gardner, the Diet Fit Study. Comparing the the low carb with a high carb sort of high quality diets, and I think they did look at about three different SNPs, gen- genetic sort of variations, and and insulin resistance. You probably know this study better than I, but they were looking to see if they could predict who was going to do well on a low carb or a high carb diet. And they already, from a prior study, had the the sort of prior knowledge, realizing that. You probably won't see much difference in terms of weight loss between the two groups and within each group you'll see some people that do really well and some people that do poorly and they showed that on a waterfall plot and it wasn't explained by the three SNPs and it wasn't explained by insulin resistance and I've always sort of walked away from that study thinking well is it is it genes that we just aren't aware of that weren't looked at or is this where the microbiome comes in sure it could be behavioral things and it could be many other things that could could explain this but do do you think potentially that the the microbiome could dictate why someone may do better on a low carb diet versus say a higher carb diet because if we look at these studies that have been done comparing these diets all the time and if you jump online you will hear you know many stories of people doing diets uh, from a macronutrient point of view that are opposite and and both seemingly um, you know reporting benefits it's quite likely that that is the case and obviously until you measure absolutely everything you can't be sure what the commode is or you do some actual intervention studies but I think if you put the diet fits study together um, with say the first of the Zoe predict studies mm-hmm. where uh, we were looking at uh, interventions so the dark fit study was you know, comparing low fat versus um, low carb healthy diets and trying to predict who did better or, or worse and they, they really didn't come up with any great prediction uh, other than there was huge variation between them and 
the PREDICT study was giving everyone the same diet, which was basically these, these muffins, and see how they responded over the next two weeks. And the interesting thing was that I expected there to be quite a big genetic component. That's why we, we put in 600 twins into that study, thinking that the, the genetics would be quite key into predicting how an individual will respond to either fat or to sugar. And it was clear pretty quickly that genetics were, were not a major player because um, they explained about 30% of the uh, sugar responses and somewhere between 0 and 5% of the fat responses. So the um, vast majority of our responses to food in fats or sugars are nothing to do with our genes. And if they're nothing to do with our genes, you know, what else could it be? Uh, it's, you know, the microbiome is, is definitely the, the number one contender there for something that can change it because we, we know that it, it, it is involved in the way we break down our food, we break down our fat, you know, the bile salts, everything else. So it, it, it all starts to make sense then that um, that is the case. And, uh, you know, and for me, studying, having studied twins from genetics for 20-odd mm -hmm. years, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise that uh, genes weren't more involved in that part of um, the way we, uh, where we process food. I thought mm -hmm. it would be that control. It maybe comes back to the, you know, your earlier question of saying, well, if, if the genes for obesity are more in the brain, then actually the way we sort of metabolize food and everything else is, is, is outside that genetic control. And, uh, you know, the, the, there are these different processes going on rather than this. It's all one simple unified approach. So I think it's, I think the microbiome definitely, uh, you know, trumps genetics mm -hmm. when it comes to how uh, all of us process our food differently. And, and, and adds to that individuality, which I think is a, a really important fact. And how much does that sort of dictate, I guess, epigenetics or microbiome environment dictate our health versus genetics? So if you look at these twins, let's say genes were fully responsible for our health. You know, the genes we're born with dictated our entire journey through life. We would expect twins to have the same outcomes, right? identical twins whereas you're you alluded to it earlier that we don't see that and health outcomes between identical twins can in fact be different how different what are we what are we talking about there when you look at the um body shape um very similar so uh you know waist to hip mm -hmm. ratios uh where the fats distributed you get, you know, the shape of identical twins really looks very similar. So at that sort of uh, physiological level, things are, are really quite similar. But where things start to go different, even in identical twins, is outcomes like uh, having uh, a heart attack, uh, having um, cancer, um, so having an autoimmune disease. So just to give you some examples, um, rheumatoid arthritis, one of the commonest uh, autoimmune diseases, is if one twin has it, the uh, other twin only has a one in six chance of also getting it. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas you would have thought that would be nearly 100%. You know, these are genetic clones. They've lived their life together. They're brought up in exactly the same way. It should be more common than that. Um, cancers, uh, you know, about one in five chances, that kind of thing. So, um, mm-hmm. And then when you get to longevity, uh, actually there's very little uh, correlation uh, between uh, when when one twin dies and the and the other one dies, so it's a strange thing that you get all these the you know the physiological similarities, the short term uh, ones that are sort of wow, but the actual hard outcomes, strokes, heart disease, cancer, um, you know, severe depression, uh, hospitalizations, they seem to be more random events that uh, are not explained by our genes. And that's, that's what led me on this, this journey to, to try and say, well, was this epigenetic or was this due to things like the microbiome? And, 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 that, and so that, that's what most people don't realize about twins is that they are often more different than they look because they're spookily similar when you look at them, uh, but scratch the surface and you do find these quite big differences and these these you know great anecdotes of extremely different uh, twins but um, personality as well as in you know in in their um, health it's an optimistic story when you when you kind of unravel it because ultimately it means that the the, the sort of code the information that we're born with well it does have some uh, say in terms of our health there is perhaps a lot that we can do and, and hopefully, you know, science has already uncovered a lot, but in with years to come, we, we continue to uncover more and more and, and that's just giving the individual much more control over, over their health as opposed to some sort of, sort of predefined destiny. Um, the other side of me thinks that if it was just purely controlled by genetics and there was nothing we could do, Twitter would probably be a much friendlier place. There'd be a lot less arguments. Um, but it is what it is. <laughs> let's, so let's zoom in on, on the microbiome. You, let's dig a little bit deeper there. So talk, talk to me about the specific things that you found through your research that lead you to, to believe that quite a lot of our health outcome is modulated, affected by the composition of our microbiome. It's it's a whole series of little pieces of information rather than one knockout um, blow. So I guess the first thing which we realised, you know, even ten years ago when we started uh, looking at this with fairly crude microbiome analysis with what was called 16S analysis, where you just take one gene um, from all the microbes and you use that to work out what's going on, saw that. In nearly every case where you said I've got 100 cases of a disease and you had 100 controls who were healthy, you always saw that there was uh, less diversity in the, in the case group. So for virtually any condition, uh, the universal uh, default position was that a disease group will have a less healthy-looking gut microbiome than the, than the controls even when you adjust for everything else, uh, age and weight and sex and smoking and everything else you can think of, the disease seemed to have this effect. So there was this link between the microbes and disease. 
That didn't tell you about direction of causality, but it certainly said these are consistently associated in every single study. Um, then, of course, you've got all the animal studies where you could transfer the, f- the fecal samples to uh, from one disease animal to a sort of healthy animal and make it diseased, which made you think that they were having a causal effect. Well, it wasn't in humans, but it was a very nice, you could take human uh, microbiomes and, and use these animal models to, to shift weight or uh, cause inflammation, or uh, you could cause anxiety or depression in mice, suggesting that there was a causal relationship of what was going on in the microbes to all this. Um, then you had, um, obviously, the successes of uh, fecal transplants in humans, which um, haven't quite gone at the, the pace we thought they were going to go uh, 10 years ago, but still uh, there are a few successes. And I would say, you know, the fact that you can get remission in something like uh, ulcerative colitis in one in five cases by uh, getting a donor sample put into someone with a, a colitis case and effectively mm-hmm. curing that person uh, it doesn't work in four out of five, but it does work in one out of five. Uh, all these uh, all these stories are telling you that the microbiome is playing a, a key role uh, in in health. And uh, as as we drill down into the individual microbes and we work out that they you know, have properties like anti-inflammatory properties, that they're also, you know, they can... Uh, interfere with the medic- medications you're, you're taking and so make them effective or ineffective shows that they are really playing a really active part in our, in our health. And uh, by, by changing them, you can also change your health. So I think it's a, you know, an increasing list of uh, studies that are being ticked off showing how the, the microbiome, and particularly the chemicals they produce, are key for our health because we know from other things, many other work that some of the chemicals they do produce, mm-hmm. like for example, serotonin in the brain, is a really healthy healthy chemical. So the idea they are these pharmacies um, is growing. So I think we also know that from our work that the microbiome plays a role in how you respond to food and that it plays a role in these uh, sh- inflammatory sugar spikes or how quickly you get rid of fat in your body. And, you know, what we thought was only produced by the liver, these these bile salts is now also produced by your gut microbes. So really they've become a a key organ in our bodies uh, that we had no idea about really, you know, even 10 years ago. Suddenly they are coming into every part of our, um, this, this whole health. So, yeah, it, it's a very long answer to a very short question, but I think it's a whole series of small bits of evidence mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are accumulating to, to show why, it's, why they are uh, crucial factors in our health. And in, importantly, unlike most of the other organs in our body, much easier for us to, uh, to manipulate and to modify if we can understand it. So I kind of, I want to, go into some of the work that you're doing with Zoe and how you're investigating this to better understand it. Um, I've had 
Dr. Will Bolsowitz on the show a few times and the Sonnenberg. So we, we have spoken about the microbiome, but if someone's kind of catching this episode and hasn't listened to those, I mean, I, I do suggest they go back and, and listen to those, but at a sort of high level here, how does food actually interact with the microbiome? I think that's an important point for us to, to kind of just go over. And why might people respond differently to different foods based on their microbiome composition? So at a high level, um, when you eat food, depending on the type of food, it, it may or may not reach your gut microbiome is one 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 thing to, to realize. So cheap, highly, re- highly refined, ultra-processed food um, where, or you're just having a sugary drink, for example, may go straight into the small intestine and get the sugar gets absorbed into your bloodstream with very little interaction with your gut microbiome. We don't know that's absolutely true, but that's what we think. Um, other food that might be healthier that contains, uh, say, plants uh, with, with high in fiber will get further down into the gut, into the lower intestine, where that's where most of the microbes are. That's where they interact with it. And there will be several components of the food that will interact. And um, one of the key parts is the amount of fiber. Uh, fiber is basically there, so it, it is it will be protected until it reaches the lower part of the uh, intestine. And that's where the microbes will uh, attack it and break it down into its constituent parts and extract all the nutrients and create these other great chemicals on the way. And they also extract from the plant something called polyphenols, which is the other important thing that we've only really recently realized that are like rocket fuel for your gut microbes. So we can't process polyphenols directly, but our microbes can. And by using the fiber and the polyphenols, our microbes are then sort of energized to produce all kinds of chemicals, vitamins, everything else to control the rest of our body, control our immune system, etc. So that's the essential way. Then also you've got, um, uh, you know, they, they still... You can break down sugars. Uh, the the, fat, the microbes break down fats for us. Uh, they're fat-eating microbes, just as there are fiber-eating microbes, and they break it down into these smaller components, these small fatty acids that get used, uh, and, and protein as well. So in a way, we have a whole niche of uh, little animals in there that are taking all the components, all the different foods, and the greater the variety of the food you're eating, the more uh, this colony of little microbial animals will be and the more the greater diversity of the chemicals you produce. That's that's my vision of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I think we're gaining more knowledge about how you know, each week about how important uh, the microprocessors are, the enzymes they produce are in breaking down that food and, and really doing it efficiently so that there's no waste and we're not hanging around lots of blobs of flat fat in our bloodstream or um, you know, getting excess sugar uh, that's causing all kinds of stress to our body and there's not so much inflammation, it's all dampened down. So all this depends on our microbes really functioning really well all the time. 
Yeah, I don't hear often hear uh, many people talking about protein and fats and the interaction between those and 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 our gut bugs. And I I saw a paper the other day. I haven't dug into it in detail, but it was looking at omega three. DHA and EPA, and I was surprised to see that they seem to find that that they uh, DHA and EPA some some of the fats at least made their way down to the large intestine and, and had a prebiotic effect. Um, so it'd be kind of interesting to to watch that space of, of research as it evolves. The other half of my question, Tim, was what 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 about our microbiome may dictate the types of food that that we feel best on that that leave us feeling energized vital and that positively affect uh you know biomarkers of of disease yeah well it's a tricky question so i mean in a way one is you know cause or effect you know and i think it's we've got to realize there's a two-way process between the microbes and and our food and our brain Obviously, if you've got the right set of uh, microbes, then you're going to um, be able to, to get rid of foods, digest them much more easily. Uh, I think that's the... Um, so if you've got fat-busting microbes, then uh, actually you'll be able to deal with fat pretty well. But if you don't, they might leave you bloated and uh, having problems. Um but of course, the more fat you eat, then you will start to gain uh, fat-busting microbes. Uh, in the same way that if you don't eat plants, and then you, you know you're lacking all of those uh, fiber-breaking down products. So I think there's a there's a sense of uh, you can you can build up these microbes over time, that then you get adjusted to it. But if you are really changing your diet in a big way, then um, you could be in for a shock for a while until your body is used to it. And we do know you can acquire microbes as you go along. And, you know, I think you've talked before on, on podcast about the seaweed story and um, how, how people can gain microbes. You're not just fixed in the amount of microbes you have. You can, you know, just by eating lots of sushi, suddenly acquire uh, the ability to break down some of these uh, t- tougher um uh, plants, etc. So I think it's a it's a two way process. But uh, so some people may have trouble eating foods because they don't have the right microbes uh, that that break them down. They then send different signals to the brain, which um, might say this is dif- difficult for me. And we do know from animal work, not human work, that uh, microbes can send out signals um, to actually choose the foods for you. Mm-hmm. So. Um, which sort of makes sense in an evolutionary way. If you think mm-hmm. you've got the microbes that are all struggling to survive and you've got this little microbe only only likes uh, eating burgers, um, it, it, if there's a way he can evolve a signal to send to your brain to say, oh, you know, send me more burgers down, otherwise I'm mm-hmm. going to die, um, you, you would do it. And we do know that in tiny little insects, just by manipulating the microbes, they can send signals out to say, you know, eat more protein or eat more carbs. And uh, so we know in theory it's true, but I think it's it's this, uh, we definitely are a mix of our microbes. And because we're all unique, you know, all of us have a unique set of microbes, we are going to be getting different signals and we'll all in a way be able to digest food slightly differently mm-hmm. uh, because of that. So again, it goes back to this idea of, our uniqueness and the fact we 
you know, the standard diet isn't going to have the same effect on all of us. With regards to those signals, I've always wondered this. Do you think, you know, I know that you know that approximately half, 50% of the average person's calories today are coming from ultra-processed foods. Do you think the consumption of those foods could be changing the microbiome in a way that then it's this kind of positive cycle where the microbiome is sending signals for more of that that food because there are certain bacteria in there that are thriving off that? I definitely do, yes. I mean, I think it's going to be quite hard to prove in humans, and that's why we may have to rely on animal studies to do that. Mm-hmm. But it sort of makes it sort of makes sense, particularly you see people who are on junk food diets or, or animals on junk food diet. They have a very pro-inflammatory set of gut microbes. So these are microbes that like an inflammatory environment. Uh, you know, they thrive off it, um, and that allows them a niche because the ones that don't like it are wiped out basically. Mm-hmm. So these guys have have the place to themselves. They like it a bit hotter, if you like, than everyone else. And so it's in their interest to keep it hot, uh, to keep the other guys away so they can dominate. And I think that's that's the way to look at it. So um, I think it's perfectly plausible that, yeah, our microbes are producing these signals uh, to our brain to uh, keep this whole uh, process going, and, and that's why it may be, you know, difficult for some people to break this um, cycle or this junk food cycle. That our microbes are contributing to it, as well as you know other other bits in our brain. You mentioned the 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 fact that our microbiome may see us have different uh, different foods that are optimal for us, that we, we do best on. And I'm interested in kind of how variable you think that is across, across humans. Uh, are we talking about variations of a, of a theme of, of eating that, that is optimal for humans? Or are we talking about one person who, due to their microbiome, literally will do best on a, say, carnivore or meat diet and – the next person does best on raw vegan. How much? How much kind of personalization variation are we talking here? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure I, uh, <laughs> I, I can give you any more than a wild guess at that. Mm. Um, but and it, it sort of depends. What's your starting point, really? Because I think uh, you know we all start with zero microbes, and we end up with a whole variety of different ones, and how we've acquired them. Uh, might be important in what sequence we we acquire them. Um, so there's no doubt that you know if you are an Inuit or uh, you know you're living in the extremes of a planet, uh, people tend to eat more fats and more proteins than they do plants. Then then they and their whole and their genes have also adapted to be able to cope with extra fats. So uh, I think there will be some idea that you'd expect the microbes to be very good at breaking down fats and requesting more fats and perhaps not so good at lots of grains in those extreme bits of the planet. Um, but, uh, but I think definitely that some of this variety in our, in our tastes could well be coming from our gut microbes. Uh, I'm sure that's true. Whether it's fixed or it's uh, something that we can modify, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, 
you know, there seems to be relatively three compartments of our gut microbes. One is that some change sort of every day, um, some hardly ever change, and some, you know, will change uh, over a few months if you change your diet. And I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how much is absolutely fixed. I have a feeling that humans are actually more flexible than we think and that we, you know, we are these amazing, omni- successful omnivores. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't like to think that everybody is absolutely fixed forever mm-hmm. in, their, in their microbes and their tastes and whether they're you know, only going to eat meat or only going to eat plants. I like to think that we do have more flexibility, but it may take a long time to, to reach it. Sure. It was more of a, a hypothetical um, question, of course, but uh, I think Herman Ponser did a good job kind of explaining the wide variation in, in different diets in hunter-gatherers across the world. Um, I'm sure you've come across his work. Um, question with regards to our microbiome and if someone's listening and thinking, gosh, this sounds really interesting, other than kind of intuitively feeling what foods feel good and what foods maybe don't feel so good. Where are we at today with regards to objectively looking at your microbiome and then getting some sort of objective feedback information that says, Simon, these are going to be foods that perhaps due to your microbiome you're not going to do so well on. And then these other foods here are going to do, you're going to do very well on them in terms of your metabolic health and how you feel. Uh, I think we're, we're getting along the way there, but I don't think we're at a point where we can solely use the microbiome to uh, tell people what they should be eating. Mm-hmm. So certainly with the studies of in Zoe, we've used the microbiome along with uh, metabolic tests in combination, looking at your, you know, the glucose spikes and your, and your, how much residual fat you've got in your system, uh, alongside as one of, you know, as, as one of those three pillars, if you like, of, of assessing it. Um, I think at the moment, uh, we don't quite know enough about the microbiome on its own to, to make these, these really strong predictions. But we're getting better every year, mm-hmm. uh, and so I can see a point um, in the next few years when it 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 will, uh, in a way, we'll have enough information about it. We we probably will be able to overtake these these other you know purely more uh, physiological tests. Mm-hmm. But I think to do that, we're going to look not just cross sectionally at the moment, which is you know one point in time data, but it's looking at people's microbiome over time. And maybe doing interventional studies on people to say, well, if we, you know, gave you this special diet for a month and your microbiome changed like this, this means uh, this is how uh, you should be eating. I think I see that as the, the logical way. But just cross-sectionally, I think uh, at the moment, I don't think we have quite enough uh, uh, knowledge to be able to say exactly uh, what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm, things are changing very fast, and and the sequencing we're doing, in just in two years, we've doubled the number of species we can identify on our metagenome analysis. So, I think it it it's it's very much a question of watch this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it it's one of the fastest moving fields at the moment. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to 
be too, be too restrictive and just say at this moment in time. Uh, I think we need to combine the microbiome findings with your blood sugar and your blood fats to come up with uh, what's going on. But some of those things like the blood fats, we might be able to replace with a microbiome as, we, as we're understanding which microbes are really the key fat, uh, mm. the fat burners, uh, et cetera. So um, it's coming, but not quite there yet. I'm sure there's some people listening, Tim, that are thinking this personalized nutrition, it sounds amazing and I'm sure we're going to get there one day and it, it sounds like uh, an incredible tool for people to really optimize their diet, but we can't even get people to eat according to the dietary guidelines. And so I wonder just, you know, how you, how you kind of think of all of this in, in, a big, in a big picture. Where does personalized nutrition sit in terms of addressing the the chronic disease, uh, I guess, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, that we see today. Um, where does changing the, the food environment and, and sort of other solutions sit in the grand scheme of things? Well, I see it as a tool for changing the way everyone thinks about food. So... I agree, you know, only a small percentage of the, of the population will be able to actually do tests like the Zoe test and, and test their personalized nutrition. But the fact that we talk about it, uh, we're talking about on this, sh- this show, I think is spreading the word that the old model of it's all about calories and uh, calorie counting and uh, basically food is fuel is complete nonsense. And, you know, once you start realizing that everyone's personalized, there's a different response to food uh, and that your gut microbes are pretty key to this, you're changing the whole conversation about food. And to me, that's the most important thing, that the more people talk about this, the more we can change uh, these disastrous ideas we have about food and the power of the food companies and and lobbyists and governments, etc. So. I think it's that's the how it how it fits in. The more we talk about personalization, the less we talk about calories. The more we talk about the quality of food, the more we talk about people thinking about what they're putting in their mouths because it affects because it's full of chemicals and it affects all these other microbes which produce other chemicals. We're changing that whole discussion about food. We're talking about really getting into the quality of it and making people appreciate what they're eating and realizing that the 50% of food that we eat really is, you know, should be taxed into the dustbin. And that's, that's the, that's the word. So I I see it's all part of this, this big picture. And that's what I think really engages me, gets me out of bed in the morning, makes me want to write, you know, as you know, spending hours and hours writing books, which is not, (laughs) um, which, Never makes you any money, but you know uh, it, it. It allows you to talk about this this subject, and mm. I, I think I am optimistic that there's more and more people talking about this now, and it's a ground up movement. Governments aren't going to do anything. Big big food isn't going to do anything. But if enough people are talking about personalized nutrition, the microbiome, they're going to be talking about food quality and uh, the food environment, and I think mm. that's you know, by combining the science with the politics, that that's the way we can get things changed. 
In terms of the, the, the dietary guidelines as they are today, is there a problem with them? I know that some people suggest there are large problems with the dietary guidelines. Do you see uh, a, a sort of significant problem with the guidelines or is it more the way the environment is, is set up that is affecting the way people are eating? Well, I mean, the guidelines are uh, an obstacle because they are so old-fashioned and so out of date and give the idea that uh, everyone is identical. Mm -hmm. And they really haven't shifted much in, in 20 years. And they're giving people generally bad advice uh, that most doctors still give their patients because they, you know, doctors might be the few people who read the guidelines. And so they're passing on this, this false information that, you know, a lot of it is demonstrably false. Uh, and it stays on web official websites for years and years after the evidence has changed. So that's why I don't like about it. But you could argue on a pragmatic level, well, no one follow <laughs> only 2% of the population follow it anyway. So why does it matter? Um, but I think, it, it so we you know but i think the fact that that's the official guidelines uh when well we know that if you ask most professors of nutrition around the world they would say well i, d I don't agree with half of them mm. um we should move on it's a problem but I, I think uh you know we need to move beyond those guidelines and just uh, start uh, realizing there isn't one set of guidelines any of us can write for for humans, you know, and uh, you, we, we've had discussions about there isn't one set of calories that everyone should have. These things are rather meaningless and actually uh, try and narrow down our complexity of our food and our human bodies into some, in some simple list to follow, which um, is either impossible to follow or or is plain wrong but it's, it's getting us to prescribe into certain patterns like you know in my books I go into this in quite a lot but you know like never skip a meal uh you know always eat little and often um you know mm -hmm. you've got to drink eight glasses of water a day uh you know all this sort of stuff which is is pseudoscience when you look at it now and you say well why you know why should we all do this why are we all the same anyway mm -hmm. you know why don't we um, do what's right for the individual. So, yeah, I'm against guidelines. I'm very rude about them. Um, and I think that the only people that benefit from them are, is the food industry, I think, is the honest is the honest answer. If a couple of questions on that. So um, if, you're, if you were sitting down as a physician with a patient and you had, you could give them three or four or five sort of bullet points that you felt were were far more beneficial than referring someone to the to this dietary guidelines as they are now. What would that piece of information look like? If I was really keeping it very simple and and and, and high level, I would say uh, try and eat for your gut microbes. Uh, every time you think of food, if you're eating for your gut microbes, you're not going to go far wrong. And if they say, "Oh, what does that mean?" I'd say, "Well." eat as many diverse plants as you can in a week and I say oh, you know try and go for 30 uh, you know remember that uh, nuts and seeds and uh, uh, herbs and spices are all part of those plants uh, 
um, try and pick plants that are colorful and, and have lots of flavor because they've, uh, they've probably got uh, polyphenols in it, which are rocket fuel for your microbes, have fermented foods, which are good for your microbes, uh, and you give a list of remind people what they are. Many, uh, many Brits and Australians don't, you know, don't regularly have them. So you might, you know, you know there is this stuff called kefir and kombucha and uh, kimchi and sauerkraut, as well as yogurt and cheese. And uh, and just so your gut microbes don't like uh, ultra processed food much. So really, um, try and cut that out. And uh, then, you know, if they ask, is there anything else I could do? Well, I say, well, you could try, you know, restricted time eating because your gut microbes like uh, a long rest period. They like to sleep in, uh, give them a long time. So I think if if every doctor told their patient that, um, I think uh, it would help uh, a lot more people than the reciting these uh, sort of biblical uh diet guidelines and what if they said okay doc all of that makes sense what about when i'm thirsty juice smoothie a low calorie uh artificially sweetened coca-cola what, what am i drinking i'd say your gut microbes don't like um lots of sugar because they don't get to see any of it so um you would avoid uh avoid all those things um and uh, you should be, you know, if you are going to drink anything, uh, it should be water, it should be tea, it should be uh, coffee particularly, which is now much healthier than orange juice and should be in the health food section because it's, you know, and you remind them that coffee uh, actually is a fermented plant and uh, it's just roasted fermented plant that actually has is packed with polyphenols and actually if you have about three cups a day has a reasonable amount of fiber in it uh, about a third of the u.s fiber <laughs> total comes from their coffee drinking uh, and so uh which is a frightening thought is that is um, that saying that's not saying much about the the average fiber intake <laughs> <laughs> no it's fairly low so it, yeah it wouldn't go far. It wouldn't go far for the Hadza, you know, tribe. But um, mm. uh, for the average uh, American, probably Britain, Australian as well, it's 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 quite a high high factor. Um, yeah, and uh, so you know, sugary artificial drinks. Avoid art- artificially sweetened beverages because we don't think they're good for your microbes either. So I think you can go a long way using the microbe <laughs> argument. Um, that uh, this you know do things they like and then you you know and that's makes you understand a bit more your body understand more the food what it's doing rather than just these rules that people blindly follow which they don't no one really understands even the people probably making up the rules about you know why you should eat starchy foods why you uh, you know often forgotten the 30 year old research that it was based on uh, which now wouldn't still, you know, wouldn't stand up. So water's good. I think we can all agree on that. Um, I need to ask about artificial sweeteners, and I know that this is probably something that you find yourself arguing with lots of people uh, about. And I don't, want, I definitely don't want to incite any any type of argument. I'm just aware that there probably are listeners 
who are exposed to different sides of this conversation and are left in the middle thinking, gosh, Tim Spector is saying artificial sweeteners might not be great for our gut bugs. And then folks like Lane Norton are saying, well, if you look at clinical trials and when they compare artificially sweetened drinks to sweetened beverages, they seem to come out better. There doesn't seem to be deleterious effects on metabolic health. How do we reconcile this? Where, where do you kind of land? I mean, you've made it clear where you land, but why is it that you kind of take that approach uh, with regards to artificially sweetened beverages? I think I come from the approach that, you know, the companies that were pushing it were really sort of pushing them as, as health, healthy drinks and that, um, you know, the healthy alternative to, um, you know, the Cokes and the Pepsis, the Fantas, et cetera, and that, there was really no no downside to having them. They were just fun, nice, sweet things that were good for you. And so the studies that have come out, you know, initially from you know the uh, Weizmann group, um, showing that uh, both in mice and humans you could alter the gut microbiome by giving them uh, particular artificial sweeteners. Uh, really led weight to it. So when I, when I looked for the book, I, I went and looked at the studies about artificial sweets, thinking that they would definitely show that, you know, people who switch from, uh, say, Cokes to diet Cokes or, or vice versa would show big differences in weight when they did that. And the studies really, when you look at the meta-analysis, are very unconvincing um, of, of any clear difference between them which is really weird because you're thinking there's a big difference in calories if, if people are having, uh, you know, switching at least two cans a, of day uh, for something else for over over a year. Um, so that the meta-analysis don't show clear differences or systematic differences. You can always pick one study that does or one mm-hmm. doesn't. But my view was that um, if there was a difference, it was absolutely tiny. And... Uh, um, that despite that difference of, you know, 500 calories a day uh, was quite amazing. So what, what was happening to make up for that 500 calories must be something going on metabolically. Um, they are good for your teeth and absolutely dentists are absolutely right to support them. Uh, you don't get tooth decay if you're using artificial sweetness. So that is one, one reason to, to switch. But I think we do know that uh, certain of these uh, sweeteners are bad for your gut microbes. We don't know they all are, and they all have very different, um, they all work very differently on the body. Some are absorbed quickly, some go through to the gut, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's still possible they might be able to find some. Uh, we know little about stevia, for example. It, it, it could end up being okay. Um, but again, the real studies haven't been done. But I just, my main resistance was this is a, a really healthy alternative to sugar and that we should just have as much of it as we like. And we know many people that do get addicted to it that are having, you know, five or six of these a day. And that means they're also not, you know, eat, eating other proper foods either as, as a result. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm against them. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have sometime in common, I, you know, would I rather have, something I know is got sugar in it 
and I know it's uh, bad for me. I, I, you know, I know exactly what's in there. Or this sort of mystery compound that uh, has these chemicals that haven't really been tested uh, to know what what's what's happening. So that's why that's why personally I'm, I'm against them. But but I don't think having one uh, diet drink a week uh, is going to upset anybody. Uh, I think having uh, two cans a day for the whole of your life is. And I think that that's also an important difference. Are there any kind of studies that you wish would would be conducted with these kind of compounds? I know that you mentioned there there's there's been some animal and human studies. I guess one thing that I do hear about animal studies, and you would be well aware of this, is that sometimes the exposure amount can can be different with with regards to kind of milligrams per kilogram of body mass uh, proportionally to what a human would be exposed to. Are there are there any trials that you think would help sort of shed further light on these compounds? Um, well, human studies are obviously the ones to go for, and or always the combination of the uh, the rodent studies with with parallel human studies. So you work out what it's doing in rodents, you get the mechanisms, and then you actually do the trial in humans. And they have, I think there are some being. I heard there the Israelis were doing a big study. It hasn't been published yet, uh, and they. I think had over a thousand people, which is the sort of numbers you need, because of the individuality in our gut microbes. It could be that some of us are resistant to, uh, you know, are quite able to cope with sweeteners, and others aren't. It, and so I think you do need big numbers. Uh, and of course, who's going to pay for this? You know, um, it's very hard to get money for proper nutrition research. And of course, the sweetener companies are doing all they can to stop this kind of research, uh, or they will do small, tiny uh, rodent studies to try and disprove that there's any harm done. They don't want to do any big studies. That's totally not in their interest. So they're the kind of study. So, yeah, a thousand people follow for a decent length of time looking at these metabolic markers, but also looking at a range of different um, sweeteners because increasingly they're used in combination as well by the companies as well. So we don't really know how they, they work. But... I think you know what what shouldn't happen is new artificial sweeteners are introduced into our food chain without any um, uh, tests on on humans or the microbiome. I think that is just mm-hmm. you know, madness. So that's what I'd I'd love to see. But I think the interesting analogy is that um, this work on emulsifiers in food, and um, there's. Um, Benoit Chassain in, in, um, in Paris has um, been looking at this and showing that uh, certain emulsifiers in, f- in, uh, in processed foods, uh, only some people uh, are uh, sensitive to, uh, but they might be acutely sensitive to it because of their microbes. And so uh, you know, there, there might be six or so common emulsifiers in processed foods, but only two or three of them uh, may be problematic, mm-hmm. uh, and it may only be problematic in like a third of people, but uh, they get a bri- yeah, which is very personalised. Is that something that you think Zoe will be able to help someone predict in the future? So when they do their microbiome test, they're not only getting food recommendations, but they're also getting recommendations about particular additives and those that they might cope fine with versus those that they may not. 
Absolutely, yes. That's that's very much the plan, and uh, we're working with with Benoit at the moment to um, try and understand uh, which microbes are highlighted and which, uh, so that we can uh, do a test about likely susceptibility. So once once you get your microbiome profile done by Zoe, we'd be able to say we believe you're highly likely to be sensitive to these about these particular additives in food. I'm going to start with the emulsifiers, but as you know, there are there are potentially hundreds of others. But it, it does look like that once you've got these big samples, now you know, we've now got uh, nearly thirty thousand uh, subjects with their diet history and their metagenomes. We're going to soon have. 300,000 will be able to really tease apart these things. So give very precise advice so that people who totally unknowingly are having a really bad reaction to something in food mm-hmm. um, will be able to, to avoid them. And But it probably means the manufacturers will, will just change it for something else because once mm-hmm. it gets known, a bit like you know the big scare about e-numbers, you know, everyone just went and they just changed the names of the... Uh, the chemicals to something similar. Sure. How much of this can we potentially sort of sidestep by changing the composition of our microbiome? So I'm interested, you've got these 30,000 folks or samples in Zoe so far. Have many people submitted multiple samples over time and you've been able to see changes in the microbiome with changes in diet and then whether that's affected blood glucose control and lipids so yeah so that's really the concept of retesting people and that's we've we've just uh started analyzing a pilot of about 300 people that have done it again and um we've we're also uh starting a randomized controlled trial to actually do this systematically rather than just observationally Mm -hmm. Uh, where we give two arms, you know, one with the Zoe program, one without, to look at these differences. But um, we don't have the data at the moment, but I, I think that's a really important question is um, working out how do we focus on the modifiable parts of the gut microbiome. And at the moment, our advice is is much more cross-sectional, but I think it's going to get much more um, concentrated and focused because we can say, we know that in most people who follow go from an unhealthy to a healthy diet, you know, these are the microbes that are crucial. And then we can work out what the foods you need to eat are for these crucial microbes. So we can start to really zone in on what we think are the, the key ones. Because mm-hmm. you know, in this in all this complexity of the gut microbe with thousands of species, it's different in everybody, a lot of confusion. But if you can work out what the key species are and start targeting them and getting rid of the the unhealthy key species, uh, then I think we we can get much better targeted advice. So that mm-hmm. that's what we're aiming for. And I think it would be nice for people, you know, once a year to get retested to see, well, am I on the right track? Um, and crucially, you know, the bit we don't know is is how if how much by improving your gut microbes, can you reduce your sugar peaks to the same food? So mm-hmm. ultimately, would like to say, yeah, okay, you know, after two years of this, you've sort of improved your good bugs by so much, you can now uh, have extra sugar or, or carbs 
and you won't get a worse peak. Uh, we don't know that yet. At the moment, we're telling people just to uh, swap swap your foods around. Uh, but everyone has their favorite food that they would quite like to have. So mm-hmm. knowing that in two years' time, it's safer to have it. And intuitively, it makes sense that if, if we have a healthier gut microbiome, we can give ourselves naughty treats more <laughs> than if we have an un, you know, than if we're in an unhealthy state because we're we're better able to cope with it. We've got more balance. So I'm hope hoping that will be the case. On on the sugar peak, I've got to actually have a question to to run past you. So let's say we're talking about a healthy individual. So their HbA one C is well below five point seven. They're not pre diabetic or they and then they don't have type 2 diabetes how important is the kind of rate in which blood glucose uh, blood sugar goes up and the kind of um, trajectory of that curve for a healthy person if they're in range the entire time so the, you're saying the peak never goes very high in other words well the peak goes up let's say for example they're you know, their blood glucose goes up, but it doesn't go outside of the, the normal range versus, say, after a certain food or a meal where it, it, it's also within the normal range, but it's lower. Are we automatically presuming that that lower, um, the response t- to the lower meal means that that lower meal is therefore healthier for them, despite the fact that in scenario A and scenario B, their blood glucose in both examples is within the normal range uh yeah that's a good question i think i think we don't really know what the normal range is is the um you know that they were set in the days when we were studying diabetes and pre-diabetes rather than studying uh normal normal uh, non-diseased individuals so i think we're we're starting from scratch really to build our what what is a normal range? And I see this as not a binary effect, but a but it, it's a, it's a continuous curve. That uh, in general, you know, the more peaks you have, the 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 more subtle inflammation or stress on the body you're getting. Mm-hmm. So that that's the general concept. I, this idea of a, a normal abnormal range, you know. I'm not sure is true. Um, it may be very hard to see a difference at these low levels. So it could take years before you actually noticed any real uh, effect of them. And so it may not be something to worry about at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think we know yet what a, a normal range is um, because in our studies, we, we, are, we have shown that both glucose peaks and fat peaks are associated with low-level inflammation uh, measured in the blood. Measured in the blood. When you say peak, are you talking about is that is that referring to a fast rise and a fast fall versus slow rise, yes. slow fall? Right. Yes. Um, I mean, there's obviously we you know there's the area under the curve, which is the other way of of seeing mm-hmm. this of how long it it does stay up, which is the sort of standard way of. Of of looking at this, and both are both are associated, but the um, the actual how far the peak goes up is also linked to inflammation. So mm-hmm. I think it, it's it's going to be very difficult to work out whether there is a safe level 
uh, you know, one one level is safe because you know it, it's normal for your blood sugar to go up. Uh, you eat something, it goes up. We're born that way. We mustn't be frightened of that. I don't think we want to, you know, uh, to have have to live a life where you have zero peaks of any anything. Uh, I don't think we quite know where the level is where there is no extra inflammation. I think maybe that's the the key to do that. We will need massive studies. You know, we did a study of a few hundred people, um, which is big by nutrition standards, but it wasn't enough to uh, come up with a, a safe level. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I think you need thousands of people to do that mm-hmm. before you can uh, get that space. But mustn't forget, there's other things of the curve that are also important. So we discovered that the, this three-hour dip. Um, so you can have not so big a peak, but actually if you have a, a dip below the threshold three hours later, that was associated, you know, one in four people had that, and that was associated with extra hunger. Uh, so you actually ate mm-hmm. more uh, during the day. And so I think we're discovering there's much more to these these profiles than just a simple peak or an area under the curve. As we get more and more data, I think we will understand this. But I don't think there's such thing as a, a normal range. And it might be that, you know, we, all of us, in a way, we all have our personal normal range. And uh, we need to work out what that is and what is the area that, that you know, changes our energy levels or uh, uh, makes us more hungry or um, make it makes the blood slightly more inflamed. So it's, uh, bigger studies will will show the you know we, we will get these answers. So maybe in a year I'll be able to tell you. Do you have any sort of clues or ideas as to what might cause that dip three hours after a meal that then increases appetite? Uh, I don't, to be honest. Um, uh, it's you know it's obviously some sort of overcorrection, mm-hmm. um, and. What exactly is controlling that? I don't know. I think we were the first group to look at it because no one had looked beyond two hours previously. So, to, and it was actually a, a non-medic who was doing the analysis, so he didn't know. <laughs> he had a physics background, so he didn't know that he were you weren't allowed to look more than two hours, and so he looked at three hours and found it. Um, yeah, so I, I guess it it could be something in the brain, you know, the controlling part of. Uh, uh, of, of this complexity is is mm-hmm. often somewhere in the brain that is is suddenly saying um, this is some defense mechanism to tell us to eat more something evolutionary but it doesn't happen in everybody that's that's really interesting so again Zoe's we're going to be telling people are you a dipper mm-hmm. uh, and should you be extra careful about what you have for breakfast because otherwise you'll be super hungry at eleven you know eleven a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to overeat in that day if you don't really watch out uh, for your for these potential dips, and people will get into habits. So I think that that's one of these exciting things is how we can feed back this information so people can, uh, and other people are maybe immune to it. They just don't they don't dip, they right. don't get um, don't get hungry, and I think that's that's also really interesting. Why are they protected? Why mm-hmm. don't they get it? Those that do experience that, do you kind of hypothesize off other research that they they may do better with a higher protein, higher fat meal, less carbs to try and avoid that dip, or, or what, what do you think you'll you'll find? Yeah, yeah, no, I think those people generally do better 
uh, upping their fats and having less, uh, you know, fast fast available carbs, mm-hmm. because it's quite a big factor. If if you just had a carb breakfast, you know, for ten years, and you're putting on an extra, you know, in, in the short term study we sh- we showed these people were putting on, you know, two hundred and fifty calories more. Um, you know, that's going to be a considerable weight gain that they wouldn't notice and they wouldn't know why they were uh, just eating more. And again, I think it's a brilliant study to show how ridiculous the idea of calories is because everyone was eating identical breakfasts mm. and yet some people, it made them eat overeat in other meals later in the day and others it didn't. And I think that really... That one experiment really brings home to me the power of, of personalized uh, nutrition and, and advice and blows out of the water that the idea that, you know, all calories are equal and that, you know, everyone should have their, their 2,000 or 2,500 calories. You mentioned before continuous blood lipids uh, or you mentioned that you were measuring blood lipids and it makes me think about is there a future where at the moment we have continuous blood glucose monitors, do you think that there would be benefit from monitoring lipids continuously. And I'm interested in, in sort of why you added that lipid test within the Zoe framework. Why is that important? Well, we added it because we realized that, uh, you know, if you could, for some people, fats are a problem. Uh, we've, we've known that, uh, fats hang around in some people's blood for a long time and they're associated with inflammation and you know as the you know fats have been demonized for a long time particularly saturated fats because of the pro-inflammatory effect they have and the fact they increase heart disease and, and, and diabetes but we've known there's this big variation and when when we were setting up Zoe you know obviously the the CGM, the glucose monitor was there, uh, but we felt that you can cheat on your glucose monitor. You can say, okay, if you just add double cream or uh, to everything you eat, mm-hmm. you can ha- you can just about get a flat <laughs> line, right? So are you going to say to everyone, just with every meal, you have a tub of uh, double cream as fat and you can... Um, have what appears to be a perfectly healthy diet. And most of us say, well, probably that's not a great idea. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the idea that we had to look, wanted a more holistic approach rather than just being obsessed purely with controlling the peak and carbs, uh, we wanted to look at other aspects and realize there were people who um, might be poor metabolizers of fat that if you switched them from a carb diet to a high fat diet would have these residual bits of fat in the blood that we know that if if at six hours you've still got a considerable amount of fat in, floating around in your in your blood vessels, that breaks down into these small little particles, um, and these small particles get caught up in the lining of the the blood vessels and cause inflammation and atherosclerosis and all kinds of other problems and inflammation. So. We wanted to be able to uh, give advice both ways to say, okay, we don't, we think you're not coping very well with carbs. And luckily, you you can have as much fats as you like, or you can do this, but you can only go up to a certain amount of fat before you you might start problems. You need to be not eating, 
too much in one go because your body may not be control it right. And that was that was the the rationale. And uh, we'd love someone to invent a continuous uh, triglyceride monitor. Mm-hmm. And we probably wouldn't need it every five minutes, but you could at least have it every hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been invented yet, but if someone's listening, uh, I think you'd make make a fortune if you could invent one. <laughs> uh, because look, look at the billions that the glucose monitors have, have made for for those companies. Mm. Um, but at the moment, we're just doing it with a finger prick test, and we have there is quite good technology that does it on a dry dry blood spot, and so it, it can be done in your home. So these have been really big advances about measuring triglyceride at mm-hmm. home very very easily and cheaply. Uh, so that's why it's this holistic approach. I don't think you can just take personalized nutrition and say it's only about sugar peaks or it's only about uh, you know fats. But if you combine them and then you, you add in the mix of the, the microbiome, then mm-hmm. I think you're getting much more towards a holistic view of nutrition, which is uh, where I think we should all be, mm-hmm. be heading. Yeah, I think that's really sensible and it kind of speaks to where I was going earlier about the peaks. I have seen some communities online where the CGMs are very popular that some of the rhetoric is about flatter the better and one of my worries was that, like you just said, you can kind of hack your way to a flat blood glucose but is that is that negatively affecting your diet quality in that in that process and having a deleterious effect on lipids and you wouldn't know that unless you're actually measuring them, um, like you've just explained. So I, th- I think that's great. Tim, there's so much more I want to talk about. I'm just conscious of your time and, and your schedule today. I want, I want to get you back on and, and talk about dairy. I want to talk about fish. I want to talk about snacking, meal timing. There's, there's a lot more to, to delve into, but uh, I know that you're very busy and, and I want to let you go today. So Thank you so much for what's been a very, very informative discussion. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. As I said at the the outset, I've I've read a lot of your published papers. I've certainly read your books, and um, I think you are super insightful and, and a great voice in this space. Leave us with a bit of a look into the the future. Let's say it's 2032, so a decade from now. Time will fly will be there before we know it have have we made any inroads as a society with regards to public health and nutrition in in that 10-year period and what does personalized nutrition look like then wow well i hope we've cleared covid by then um (laughs) (laughs) me too covid mark (laughs) two well the new the new virus yeah the new aussie virus um but the um um, yeah, so I think personalized nutrition will be with us. I think we'll be wearing smart watches that uh, can measure our, our glucose. Uh, we'll be getting sugar readings through our watches. And we'll be much more aware of the, f- the effects of foods going into our bodies. Hopefully, we'll be, it'll also measure fats by then as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll, we'll mm-hmm. know that. So it'd be a consumer-led approach to um, to foods, and I think uh, food labelling will have will have changed, and um, hopefully it might be a Zoe label on foods, so telling us what the uh, the microbiome score is for that food uh, that says how gut friendly this food is, which is 
one of the, will be a, a measure of, of quality. Um, I think calories will still be there, but hopefully in, in a minute font uh, where they're <laughs> as small as they put the fiber font on the labels now will be mm-hmm. where the calories are. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think the food companies will have will have adapted and changed. There'll still be ultra-processed foods, but uh, they will be forced to study those foods, those additives uh, mm-hmm. for uh, gut mi- for their effect on our on our gut microbes and our general health. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't see that. The, I still think fifty percent of our food will be ultra-processed. Uh, that's not going to change, but I, I think all those companies will have shifted to have more gut-friendly products by then um, because they already have divisions within those companies working on this. And also personalized nutrition will be a a real thing. So all the products will have uh, different uh, color coding for saying whether you're a a good or bad uh, sugar metabolizer or fat metabolizer, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I'm... But I'm an optimist, so I, mm-hmm. I think um, there will be this this opinion, this group of uh, of products. It's not going to be universal because um, it may uh, even in ten years. I don't think it, everyone will be able to for, afford the, these level of of foods and devices. But I think it will be uh, very much mainstream, and everyone will be testing their microbes every year. Definitely, mm-hmm. uh, this will be. And uh, all the health services will do that rather than measuring your blood cholesterol. This will be a much more important uh, thing for all of us to do. So uh, we can talk in 10 years and see how wrong I was. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Um, and, of course, a number of other things that I'd love to get you back on. I just mentioned a, a few there, but I'd love to dive deeper into ultra-processed foods and and specifics with regards to how they could be improved and, and your thoughts on that um but we'll save that for for part two we'll keep this as an open conversation thank you so much again uh look forward to having you back on i'll pop a, a link to your socials the zoe website and uh their socials and also to your books in the show notes that's great great talking to you son thanks tim thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.